Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Donald Trump is asking for a mistrial in New York State's $250 million civil fraud lawsuit that threatens the former president's real estate empire. Trump alleges the judge has tainted the proceedings with tangible and overwhelming bias. The request is just another clash between Trump's legal team and Judge Arthur and Goron. It has almost no chance of success because the judge himself will be making the decision on the mistrial motion as well as on the ultimate outcome in the case. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, an adjunct professor at NYU Law School. Tell us what this mistrial motion is about. Well, it's really the same complaint that they've been making in court about the judge and specifically his law clerk. The defense has been really up in arms about the law clerk and accusing her of making facial expressions she shouldn't make and passing notes and taking a greater role than they think she should be taking in the trial and they've been making those objections in court, and that really is the focus of the mistrial motion, that the clerk is taking an outsized role, and the judge himself is also biased against the defendants. And so putting those things together, they allege that a mistrial should be granted. I have to say, it does seem like the judge is a little unorthodox with what's happening in the courtroom, but is there anything wrong with having the law clerk pass him notes and asking her questions and things like that? Is there anything wrong with that? Not the way that you put it. There's certainly nothing wrong with relying on your law clerk to help you try the matter, do research and give you the results, even give her opinion about what's happening. You know, there are no rules around really how you're supposed to use your law clerks in that way. The only issue would be if there were demonstrated bias. I mean, I do think that if they could show an actual bias on the part of the judge or the clerk, and then they would try to show that, you know, the the law clerk's bias is infecting the judge, then, you know, you could see a court saying, and it's certainly not going to be this court, right, because Mm -hmm. this judge doesn't believe anything wrong is happening, and he's not going to grant this motion, but then, of course, it goes up on appeal. So you could see in theory an appellate court saying, wow, you know, the law clerk told the judge, you know, all these untrue and really prejudicial things about one of the parties, and the judge said that he took that into account, and that's why he's ruling against them. I mean, that's the sort of hypothetical that you could see an appellate court saying, well, wait a minute, that seems like bias to us, and, you know, maybe we'll consider this. But we don't have anything like that here. You know, we have some allegations that aren't even true, you know, the nonsense about the law clerk dating Chuck Schumer. And then there's a couple of like the law clerk had made a donation to a Democrat. And those sorts of things are never going to rise to the level of demonstrating bias. If you give to someone of a political party that's the opposite of the political party of one of the litigants, that's just never going to rise to the level of, of any sort of demonstrated bias. 
Let's turn to Trump's defense, and I'm going to sort of go through what I see as the defense. So one is the valuation of properties, like the ones listed on Donald Trump's financial statements, is not an exact science. It's more like an art than a science. And not only did Trump testify to this, but they've had accounting experts testify. One said... The process of determining the estimated value of a property could result in a range of values, no one of which is the right or wrong answer. It's a judgment call. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is the defense that they have to make. The judge has effectively already rejected this by finding that there was fraud here because the judge found, you know, it's not so much like that the statement said 10000 and a more reasonable amount would be 5000 I mean, the judge found that there were magnitudes of difference between what's an accurate assessment and the assessments that were given by the defendants on the financial statement. So it's not even a close call. So even if you say, listen, we put in proof that it's not an exact science, it's like, okay, fair enough, but is it not an exact science enough to talk about, you know, hundreds of percentages, you know, by the magnitude of one of the properties, it was like 2,300 times or something between what the judge found was a reasonable assessment and the assessment on the papers. So, you know, at some point you can say all that, but it doesn't really get you as far as you need to go. And the heart of this has already been decided by the judge. So I don't think he's going to be swayed by testimony that says, hey, it's not an exact science you know, let's treat it more as an art and and cut him some slack for that reason. Another defense seems to be instead of blaming the lawyers, as Trump may do in other cases, blame the accountants. So Eric Trump testified that he relied on the accounting firms to assure the financial statements were accurate. Donald Trump Jr. testified he signed off on the statements but left the work to outside accountants. And Trump himself has said, you know, I paid the accountants all this money. Where does that get them? Yeah, I don't think this was going to work either for largely the same reason. The judge has already considered that as part of his finding that the defendants did commit fraud here. I mean, the the statements themselves talk about what it was that the accountants were doing and described it as more of a compilation, right, that they're relying on the documents and the accuracy of the documents provided by the organization, and they're not attesting to that themselves, the accountants. So I don't think that the judge is going to buy that particular argument that, you know, I'm not responsible. Someone said it's kind of like, you know, I can't be convicted of tax fraud. You have to go after my accountant, even though, you know, I lied to him about what I was paying in taxes or what this particular property was worth or so on. You can't get away with it by just kind of saying, hey, you know, I have an accountant, and so therefore I'm free and clear of all liability. So now, Trump has said this inside and outside the courtroom. He points to the disclaimers on the financial statements and says that that insulates him from liability for discrepancies or misstatements. He said that the banks have to do their own due diligence. The judge, I know, has ruled against that, but they keep bringing it up. Well, listen, in large part, they're kind of laying their appeal record, right? They have to make these arguments and they want them to be fleshed out with their witnesses and so on so that the appellate court can consider them. You know, the judge rejected this, but this is an interesting one to me. It's just, on the one hand, he's, of course, fighting this, trying to avoid a big judgment against him and trying to win because he's a winner and all these other reasons. But he's also kind of fighting for 
the reputation that he's cultivated so carefully, right, over all these decades of him as a successful businessman and a really rich billionaire and so on. And so it's just kind of funny to me that part of his defense is, you know, well, even if I was lying and puffing and all of that stuff, like I basically told the banks that they had to be responsible themselves because I can't be trusted. You know, the notion that he would kind of come out and say, this is worthless. You know, my numbers that I put on this can't be trusted. You're on your own. I don't know. It's just kind of a funny contrast to then going out there and saying, oh, my properties are worth so much more and kind of doing the puffing and then turning around and saying, you know, but if they're not, it's not my fault. You have to check it out yourself. So, you know, yes, this is a legal claim that they're making. They're trying to set it out for appeal. But I think it's it's kind of an interesting one when you think about it that way. But listen, they're they're taking their shot. And I, I don't think this judge is going to be swayed by that one either. But, you know, I guess they got to do it. Another thing is, Trump testified and Ivanka testified about the relationship with Deutsche Bank. And Trump said that Deutsche Bank was extremely happy and thrilled with him. Does it matter if the person or entity being defrauded doesn't realize it or doesn't care? So this is actually the most interesting thing to me, because in a way it doesn't, right? This suit is not being brought by the bank saying we've been harmed, we want you know our money back or whatever being brought by the attorney general, who's really standing in the place of New Yorkers and saying, New Yorkers, we as a state and as a people in the state have an interest in these financial institutions not being duped, right? Not being lied to by companies. We don't want companies to behave that way. And if you do, we're going to sue you. So it's not that the banks have to be harmed. But all of that said, it is really interesting Not so much that the banks weren't harmed and he paid back the loans, and that's an excuse, because that goes absolutely nowhere, because then the comeback was, well, but if the banks knew that these loans were as risky as they were because the valuations were so off, perhaps you wouldn't have gotten such a low interest rate, right? We would have taken that risk and charged you more for it so that we made more money and we lost out on that additional money. What's puzzling to me is that the attorney general really didn't get any witness to say that they had relied on them and that they would have, for example, charged a higher interest rate if they knew that the properties were being exaggerated, the worth of the properties. So I don't know, you know, and I can only think that they didn't ask those direct questions and get that evidence because they wouldn't have, right? The witnesses weren't going to say that. So that is kind of interesting because I do think it goes to the amount ultimately that the judge will find should be paid, right? The fine the disgorgement amount really is impacted by how much the banks would have made compared to what they did make. And if they're saying, we don't care, we really didn't set the interest rate with the values of the property in mind, the accurate values of the property, then I think that probably does impact the damages amount here. So that is an important piece. I don't know what the judge is ultimately going to find with all of that and, and what he's going to impose as far as monetary fines and damages go. But I do think that's an interesting argument that has some legs here because of the way the trial played out and because of the fact that they didn't get this testimony that I frankly expected they would get, that that someone would say, sure, it matters to me because I've got a set 
an interest amount, and it's going to be impacted by the value of the assets behind it. The state did have an expert witness that calculated that the lenders lost $168 million in potential interest between 2014 and 2023. That's still a far away from the 250 that she's looking for. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I, I may be wrong on this, I wouldn't be surprised if you followed it more closely, you know, witness by witness, but I don't think the witnesses from the bank, Deutsche Bank, that gave the loans actually said that. No, I still think no, it was, it was an expert witness by the state. Yeah, more theoretical, saying right. like, in theory, banks should charge more if the risk is higher, and therefore they would have made, you know, but that's different from the actual bank saying, listen, we wouldn't have changed the numbers, and therefore... There's no, in other words, there's no disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, right? So that's really the argument. And I think it is an interesting one, and I'm, I'm interested to see what the, what the judge does about that. Now, I just want to touch on the first witness for the defense was Donald Trump Jr. And, you know, the judge allowed him a lot of leeway. He spent more than an hour narrating a slideshow titled The Trump Story and, you know, talked about his father's vision. He was an artist with real estate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what is the point of his testimony in this case? (laughs) Interesting question. Um, If the cameras were in the courtroom, I would say the point is almost certainly just public facing, Uh you know? Yeah. the only point I can see that might be semi-legitimate, other than just kind of tooting our own horn, is that anytime you're a defendant and you're facing either a sentence or, you know, in this case, a damages award, you want to be humanized, right? You want the person making that decision or the jury making that decision knowing you a little bit. Um, you know, it's harder to to hammer someone that you don't know. So maybe if it was you could look at it as an attempt to humanize them or say, you know, there's a different side. We've, we've done something good here. You know, don't think we're such bad guys. You know, we're impressive, too, in our own way. So I guess in that limited sense, you could say that the judge should have given them leeway to do that. He also is smart to give them leeway just because then it's not an appellate issue, right? They say, oh, he shut us down. He wouldn't let us talk about our amazing glossy slideshow of all of our properties. So we'll just kind of sit there for the hour and let him do his thing. But, you know, I, I can see some some very small benefit to kind of let us tell you about who we are and our family and our story and, and as a way to kind of humanize us and, and make you maybe like us a little bit more than you do. Well, there's a lot more to come with this trial. The defense is expected to last until mid-December. Thanks so much, Jennifer. That's former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Donald Trump did have a win in the case today. A New York appellate judge lifted Judge Ngoran's gag order that barred Trump from commenting about court personnel. The suspension will allow the former president to speak freely about court staff while a longer appeals process plays out. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Wall Street's cops are partnering with unlikely tipsters against misbehaving firms. Short sellers, including big-name short sellers like Nate Anderson, Kyle Bass, and Carson Block, are tipping off the SEC's whistleblower office. Short sellers are quietly sharing their research about sketchy accounting and other misdeeds in the hopes of making some extra money. Up to 30 percent of the proceeds if the SEC ends up exacting a fine. And that's on top of any profit they might make by betting on the stock's decline. For example, Block got $14 million for one of his leads. Joining me is Sean McKessie, a partner at Phillips & Cohen. He was the first chief of the SEC's whistleblower office. We think of whistleblowers as being these anonymous people, and now we have these big-name short sellers among the tipsters. I mean, is it because it's such a lucrative business? Well, you know, I think there's probably a number of things that go into it, but I would say that the success of the program, which I modestly am very proud of, has attracted people to it. Um, You know, there have been efforts by the government agencies to encourage people to come forward, see something, say something. And if they didn't succeed, then nobody ever knew about them. Um, the, the SEC whistleblower program has, by all accounts, been successful. And, you know, success breeds attention and attention breeds additional information. You know, when it comes to short sellers specifically, you know, they've been playing the game, if that's the way to put it, long before the whistleblower program came around, right? I mean, people have been you know, setting up, rightly or wrongly, you know, positions, counting on equities to fall and profit when they do. And the business model behind that is you don't just randomly pick something. You know, you do some research and you come to feel and invest your money accordingly that um, things seem to be too good to be true. And so I'm going to bet this smoke and mirrors is going to clear and things are going to fail. And if they do and I'm right, then I can profit. If I'm wrong, then I don't. So if you think about what is the whistleblower program set up to do, it's set up to, to attract people to come forward if they have information that for the protection of investors is important for the SEC to know about. And it turns out to be true. And it turns out to help the SEC bring a successful action. Then you can profit over it. You can get awarded for helping the SEC bring an action that either stops a fraud, prevents a fraud, or, or minimizes the damage of a fraud. Well, isn't that what we all ultimately want? And, you know, I think the paradigm between a short seller who tried to do a slow program, wanted to ferret out wrongdoing, and, you know, if a profit came after it, so be it. It's the same general philosophy of the whistleblower program. Come forward with information that might be helpful. And if it is, you know, you're not going to get paid up front. You get paid only if it turns out your information is right. 
and it helps the SEC bring a successful action. So then you don't think there's anything particularly new about this? I think the only thing that's of note now is that some of the bigger name short sellers are now being made public that they have actually been doing this because of litigation. But I think that short sellers have been doing the kinds of things that the whistleblower program is intended to encourage for a long time, which is, you know, if you're really smart and you're a good analyst of what's going on in the market and you uncover something that seems like it's too good to be true and you act on it, you can be successful. So, you know, I don't know that there's anything new. I just think it's really something that's more out of the shadows. And I understand that there's a gnashing of teeth over, you know, a big name short seller, you know, quote unquote, wins on his bet, you know, takes the short position that ends up being successful. And then on top of it gets paid, you know, assuming the SEC brings a good action. I think it's much ado about nothing at, at the end of the day, because the only way a whistleblower gets paid under the program is if they bring good information that the SEC is able to use to bring successful action that, again, prevents the fraud or stops from getting worse. And nobody is for the worst when that happens, regardless of whether it was a short seller who, who reported it or a regular person. At the end of the day, the program is intended to incentivize people to help the SEC stop fraud, and you only get paid if you actually have done that. And I don't know how anybody understanding what the outcome is would look back and say, well, I wish it wasn't a short seller who reported this and stopped this fraud. I think you know anybody who participates in the market, and we all do in, on some level, wants fraud to be stopped and wants to prevent massive investor losses when a fraud goes undetected for too long and, and until it's too late. It can be a very long process, the process of being a whistleblower. So tell us a little about the process. Sure. You know, that's another thing that I think takes away from this theory that, you know, short sellers are, are trying to be opportunistic and, and grab another quick buck in this space because it requires quite a bit of work to be a whistleblower and it takes a lot of time. So, you know, the, the life cycle of whistleblower is whistleblower uncovers information. Uh, let's use in the short seller context and not a, a true insider, but you know, they've done their analysis and they believe that there's something wrong with, you know, a particular entity or, or an industry. And they put together what's called a, a TCR, Tips, Complaint and Referral Form, which is basically, you know, the way to present to the SEC information and avail yourself of the whistleblower program. And you include generally a narrative. You know, here's what my analysis shows. And here's why I think this is worth the SEC's attention. And, you know, then that goes into the, the SEC's TCR system which is where they gather all the intelligence that comes in, whistleblower and other intelligence all goes in the same computer system. And then there's a triage process where a couple of lawyers in the Office of Market Intelligence will review every tip that comes in and decide, A, is this one already you know, relative to something the SEC is already working on? And if so, send it to that group. If it's a new matter, is it worth the precious resources that the SEC has? And if so, you know, which group or lawyers, enforcement attorneys should be assigned to it? And then once that process works its way out, then the enforcement attorney gets the tip, and then it's up to the enforcement staff on how the investigation is conducted. Sometimes that means going back to the whistleblower and conducting interviews. Sometimes it doesn't. But ultimately, from the whistleblower's perspective, once that tip goes in the system, the control of the whistleblower is, is relatively null in terms of you know, whether the investigation happens, how it happens. Um, and the whistleblower's role is there to be uh, supportive of the enforcement attorney's efforts and respond if needed. But ultimately, it's up to the enforcement staff to decide. Assuming things go well from the whistleblower's perspective, the enforcement staff ends up bringing a successful action. On average, an investigation takes three years from the time a tip comes in the door. And then assuming that that goes well, 
Either there's a court order that holds the bad guys accountable or there's a settlement worth over a million dollars. Either way, there has to be sanctions imposed exceeding a million dollars to trip the eligibility requirements for a case to be eligible for a whistleblower award. And now you've got the second phase of this process, which is now you get to apply for an award. And the award of application process and processing an award payout can take anywhere from three to four to five years, depending on the complexity of things. But generally, the way the process works is the SEC will put out an announcement. We brought a case worth over a million dollars. If you think you contributed to it, now's your 90-day window to submit an application. You know, what the whistleblower believes that he contributed or she contributed to the matter and, you know, why the whistleblower believes he or she should get close to 30 percent as opposed to the minimal 10 percent award. The whistleblower office then will assess all claims in connection with a specific case and make a recommendation to senior members of enforcement staff as to A, whether that particular whistleblower is eligible, and B, if so, where it intended 30% range, the award should fall, at which point the whistleblower will, be, will receive a preliminary determination, uh, which says we, we have found you to be eligible and we are recommending, let's say, 20%. At that point, the whistleblower can say, you know, 20% is a little light, um, <laughs> and they'll have one opportunity to go back and ask for reconsideration, or they can say, look, that's great, we'll take 20%, and no payout can go out until the commission approves it. And so... I've tried to streamline the description of the process, but as you can see there's a lot of steps involved yeah. just in, in what I call now the second phase of the process. So now from the life cycle of a whistleblower, you know, a year to prepare, three years to investigate, and now three to four or five years to get your award payout, this is a, a, a real commitment of time. I think if people are thinking this is an easy way, a quick way to get extra bucks out of a system, they don't really understand how much of a commitment it requires and how much perseverance is required, you know, and there's no guarantees of a payout under, under these programs, right? So it's a lot of risk to take on. And yes, there's a possibility of reward, but not everyone is geared up to have that kind of perseverance and take on that kind of risk. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Sean McKessie, and we'll talk about those huge whistleblower awards you've probably heard about. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The SEC is finding itself partnering with an unlikely star witness against misbehaving firms, short sellers. 
Big-name short sellers like Nate Anderson, Kyle Bass, and Carson Block are among those tipping off the SEC in the hopes of making up to 30 percent of the proceeds if the agency ends up levying a fine. I've been talking to Sean McKessie, who served as the first head of the SEC's whistleblower office. Sean, do you think that short sellers sort of have an edge over insiders who are tipsters because, you know, they've done all this methodical research? I'll answer that in two tiers. First, whether a well-prepared tip, short seller or not, comes to the SEC with somebody who has specific, timely, incredible information and has the ability to provide ongoing assistance to the SEC staff in an investigation, it is 100% of the time helpful for the SEC and improves the efficiency of the case. And that doesn't matter whether you're a short seller or an insider. And again, the program is, is designed to attract that kind of person and that kind of information. When we go back to that 10 to 30% assessment of how big of an award a person should get, one of the factors that the SEC is required to consider is how cooperative was the whistleblower, how much resources did the whistleblower help the SEC preserve by providing information that they otherwise might be difficult to find, assisting investigation by saying, hey, you should ask these people, you know, this department about these documents. All of that is built into the incentive process of the program. We want people to come forward and we want them to help the SEC bring good cases. And if you help bring good cases and they happen more efficiently, everybody wins. And as a result, when your 10 to 30 percent is being assessed, if you you know, really moved the ball forward to the SEC, came with a fully baked cake, for example, your tip basically laid out the whole scheme and then, uh, you know, allow the SEC to leverage a very quick settlement, then you should get rewarded for that close to 30%. So the answer to the question is short sellers, non-short sellers, whistleblowers with good information can and have and will continue to increase the efficiency of the, of the SEC staff. And that's why you see so many enforcement attorneys wanting to get good whistleblower matters. It, it helps them to bring very high profile, important cases, more efficiently than they would if they didn't have somebody who had access to the information either through the research, let's say a short seller, or by being an insider and and having direct information based on what they saw or are seeing. You know, people see these huge whistleblower awards. They're like, you know, when you hear about jury verdicts that are like winning the lottery. I mean, you had the largest was $279 million in May of 2023, but there have been hundreds of millions several times. 30% is a lot of percent. Are these whistleblowers getting too much money? Especially when you think of short sellers, they're doing it as part of their job. They find these things out, right? I think there's a facial attractiveness to that narrative, but I think it's short-sighted. And I think if people just take a step back, and, and you know, this is echoes the criticism that the FCC got when just to even have the program, you know, a lot of gnashing of teeth, you know, should people get paid for doing the right thing? And a lot of, you know, anxiety around it, which causes people sometimes to get too far into the week and don't take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, why, why were we doing this? Why isn't it needed? And, you know, I can give you two words, Enron, WorldCom. These are entities where people were aware of wrongdoing and for whatever reason, were not motivated to report it in time to get it stopped so that the, those two companies could still be in existence today if somebody had come forward and provided the kind of information that would have helped the SEC stop ongoing frauds before they became company bets. So now, how does that relate to this question of you know, how much is too much? Well, ask someone who 
you know, lost their life savings in Enron or someone who worked for those companies who's, and I happen to know somebody personally who worked for the company, WorldCom required all their employees to take all of their 401k and put it in WorldCom stock. And then when the company went down, they ended up with nothing. Ask those people, if a whistleblower had come forward and stopped a massive fraud and kept your job, kept the company in business, the company had to write, let's say, a billion dollar check, but the fraud was stopped short of hundreds of billions of dollars. And so the company is now still a viable company. You still have your 401k. You still have a job. This industry still exists. Does it matter to you if the reason that that happened is because somebody came forward and now do you care that that person ended up getting paid $100 million? Let's take a step back. The awards is 10 to 30% of the amounts collected. So when you're talking about a $200 million award, that means that the amount that the SEC collected in connection with whatever fraud that was, was massive. And when do massive fines get imposed? When the fraud is massive. And so rather than say, well, wait a second, why should you know, a person get so much money in connection with something? I think you should flip it and say, why shouldn't somebody who uncovered and helped the SEC expose a massive, massive, massive fraud, why shouldn't they be massively rewarded for doing so? Isn't that exactly what we want to have happen? To have those kinds of bet the company, maybe bet an industry, you know, ruin people's lives. That fraud got stopped. Why are we questioning how much a whistleblower should get in connection with stopping massive fraud? Whistleblower awards are confidential. So I just want you to react to what a University of Kansas law professor, Alexander Platt, said. The center of gravity in this program is shifting to short sellers. I think the taxpayers should know when $14 million of our money goes to Carson Block. Why is there secrecy? Why is this confidential? I think that's a fallacy, <laughs> to be honest. I'm familiar with the professor's uh, work, and we've had conversations, and I think he's misguided in some of his uh, thought processes. First of all, and this is a minor point, it's not taxpayer money. The money that whistleblowers are paid is paid out of a fund that is funded by SEC collections. So the idea that somehow the SEC should out whistleblowers because you know, taxpayers should know where their money's going, that doesn't connect. That said, the bigger issue is confidentiality. And I can tell you, having built the SEC whistleblower program and now having represented whistleblowers for the last seven years on the other side, the biggest question almost universally that potential whistleblowers ask is, will I be kept confidential? And the reason for that is, unfortunately, there's a stigma against whistleblowers, and bad things have historically happened to people who blew the whistle. And oftentimes, they're not celebrated until after they've gone through a lot of pain, and then they get documentaries made for their heroic efforts. And that's the unfortunate you know, history that we have. And I think the SEC whistleblower program and others is helping change that. But at the end of the day, this is not about secrecy, you know, government, you know, trying to hide in the shadows. The fact of the matter is Congress in the Dodd-Frank statute said nobody at the SEC can directly or indirectly identify a whistleblower. And that is to recognize that whistleblowers want to remain confidential. And if you can't provide them some modicum of guarantee of confidentiality, you're going to lose a whole pool of people. And I can tell you for sure that that's true. People will not come forward if there's not at least a structure in place to provide for confidentiality. Well, there's a lot to learn about the process of being a whistleblower. Thanks so much, Sean. That's Sean McKessie, a partner at Phillips & Cohen. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com podcast law. 
And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.